0: Welcome to Mountain Whispers Podcast. I'm Tim Stewart, and this is a show exploring the deeper lessons that we learn from the outdoors. I chat to interesting people within mountain culture about the way that the outdoors has transformed them, about their most vivid experiences, about how they got to where they are, and lessons on flow, fear, risk, death, and everything in between. The aim is to explore how adventure sports and time that we spend outdoors can help us find meaning and transformation in an increasingly spicy world. In this conversation, I chat to Jeff Worth. Jeff is a conservation filmmaker, photographer, and certified wildlife tracker based in Washington, but roaming all around the Pacific Northwest in a sprinter. Jeff came onto my radar through his Instagram page uh, which I've linked in the the show notes where he post some of the most striking images I've ever seen of the large mammals that live in the backcountry here in the Pacific Northwest I'm talking glorious pictures of grizzlies black bears, cougars lynxes, everything basically what Jeff does is head into the backcountry and track the movements of these animals then sets up Cameras in the areas that the animals are likely to pass and leaves those cameras posted, sometimes a month and end before trekking back in to, to take a look at the shots. What he captures is the, the grace and beauty of these animals, often close enough that you can even get a glimpse of their personality, their character, their, their soul of these animals. If you haven't seen the page, Pause this podcast right now and check it out. It's in the the notes. If you don't have Instagram because it's a pernicious app that's harvesting your attention and hijacking your limbic system, totally get it. It's almost worth risking it, re-downloading the app, re-hijacking your limbic system just to, to see these photos. I reached out to get Jeff on the show partly because I'm fascinated to learn about the work that goes into capturing these shots but also to explore some of the deeper learnings that Jeff has gained from the work that he's been doing here. Something I've been trying to articulate on previous episodes is that many of us, or most particularly myself, has been conditioned by society to view the world only through a rational material lens, not allowing ourselves to view or myself to view anything that cannot be outright proven in a peer-reviewed study. While this lens on our consciousness has led to many scientific advances, it's also surgically cut us off from the magic in this world that surrounds us in every moment. As W.B. Yeats said, the world is full of magic things patiently waiting for our senses to grow sharper. That subtle vibe of energy that we're able to tap into when we're playing in the outdoors has that powerful ability to bring us into healing and transformation to drop us into those flow states where we feel and perform at our very best even if we can't yet prove this magic exists in a peer review study if it can reliably bring us into these peak states of consciousness it is sure as hell worth pursuing in my books. I I say all this because being someone that lives in the Pacific Northwest and spends a lot of time in the backcountry, I'm aware of grizzlies, black bears, cougars, and, and very rarely will see some. But seeing these photos up close of these mammals in the wild just, for me, opens the floodgates to the numinous, to the magic that comes from this land. It reminds me that we are literally just species of apes that has learned how to use tools, and then to farm, and then to build cities, and then to build the internet. And it's very easy to get caught up in the world we've built around us and forget that we are literally part of the animal kingdom people. We've learned a lot about human nature and created fields like psychology, sociology, behavior, economics, etc. But when you boil it all down, it's literally just animal behavior. And when I look into the eyes of the other species of mammals that I happen to share the Pacific Northwest temperate rainforest with, it really feels like it reconnects me with an ancient sense of wisdom. Jeff does a good job of articulating this early on, that that animal tracking is a a knowledge base that's deeply rooted in the homo sapien species, something that we've been practicing for a lot longer than we've been practicing agriculture, a lot longer than we're living in cities, a lot longer than we've been using the internet. I hope I articulated that somewhat well. Um, So we chat about that. We chat about uh, how Jeff got into animal tracking, a little bit more on the art of animal tracking, the clues that these animals drop, that they're frequenting the areas around you, um, so there's a bunch of other things, uh, he's done early activism work, he's involved in a lot of conservation, filmmaking, so there's a lot of different nuggets of wisdom, all um, all sprinkled in there, so please enjoy this conversation, I certainly did, without further ado, here is Jeff Worth. <laughs> all right well i'm here with jeff Worth.
1: jeff welcome to mountain whispers hello thank you thanks for having me
0: um so you're in you're in washington right now i know um you're a freelancer you juggle a lot of different things what what has like been the the flow in the last couple
1: of months What, what does your winter look like yeah it's it's hard talking about a natural flow during the pandemic you know i feel like um the pandemic has been a dam in a river and it's just, the river's being diverted in all these different ways. Mm-hmm. And you just sort of have to, you know, have to pick which stream to swim up. Uh, the current flow recently, the past few months has been traveling between British Columbia and where I live in Washington. You know, I have friends and my partners in in British Columbia, so it's always fun to go up there and spend time with friends and family and, you know, track cougars and track wolves and that sort of thing, and then come home to Washington and do some more work. Uh, Yeah, so right now I'm spending time at home in southwest Washington doing a little it's kind of an in-between time from hanging out with uh, friends and family, and then I'm gearing up to be on the road for a few weeks in the next month or so. So yeah, enjoying being at home right now. Mm-hmm. Cool.
0: What what uh? What's the longest you spend on the road? Can it be months at a time?
1: Yeah. So I have, I have a sprinter van that I live and work out of, and it makes you know, living and working on the road a lot more comfortable. Um, Historically, you know, I've done a lot of work with the ocean conservation group, Sea Shepherd as well. And for example, you know, I've lived on a ship for five and a half months straight, um, you know, in one go. And that's, that's sort of, you know, a similar vibe to being on the road in the field, you know, like being stationed up in northern bc somewhere working on a project i it's sort of the same same vibe like same feeling
0: you're talking about it what makes me think about is like the 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 flow of like a freelancer or, or like a project-based person it's very different to to say my flow which is like when you're working a nine to five it's like regimented by the weeks a bit more i, I I, I like the picture you're painting there. Um, and I want to get into Sea Shepherd as well, but I, I think a good place to to start is, so you're, you're a photographer, you're a filmmaker, you're a conservationist, uh, wildlife tracker. Um, what? Where did it all start? What first called you to the
1: outdoors or or to, to nature? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, cliche as it sounds, I grew up as a nature loving kid, but it didn't really get serious until I started getting involved in, in activist groups, you know, whether it's conservation or environmental related activist groups. I got heavily involved in those circles for quite a while. And while I was involved in those communities, I also got interested in photography and filmmaking. So you know, I picked up a camera, started you know shooting campaign videos. I did a lot of really bad videos until I felt I was comfortable, uh, you know, charging for my my work. And by that time, people were you know the groups I was working for they needed video work done, and they're like, hey, let's just you know let's have Jeff do it. We know him, we trust him. Uh, let's just have him do it. And that's kind of how my work in the conservation world started. And yeah, that's similar to how my work with Sea Shepherd started. I got a call from them one day and they said, hey, we want you to uh, come to Antarctica with us and help us shoot a TV show. And uh, I think I, I was a barista living in Portland at the time. And I told my boss, I was like, hey, I have this opportunity. And my boss was like, yeah, you would be stupid to not do that. So I quit my job and that was the last, uh, you know, that was the last job job I've ever had. I've been doing freelance work since then. And that was, yeah, I don't know, like 10 years ago or so, I think.
0: Mm -hmm. What was the, uh, the documentary in Antarctica?
1: Yeah, so at that time... Sea Shepherd, their, their main and most public campaigns were uh, trying to stop the government of Japan from killing whales in a whale sanctuary. And there was a hit show on Animal Planet called Whale Wars. Um, so that was, that was the first time I worked with Sea Shepherd was helping them film, at that time, I think it was either season six or season seven, of their hit show whale wars yeah i had a lot of friends working within sea shepherd already and i think you know they they needed somebody and hey let's just call this guy and Mm -hmm. i've been you know all around the world with them a handful of times since then
0: that is really really cool i remember um yeah i remember that being on the news a lot in in new zealand the sheep sea shepherds uh activism oh yeah is it i'm curious is it uh it's no longer in the news that sometimes means the activists were were victoria sometimes it means the news cycle decided to focus on other things what would you know about the current state of whaling or or like whale population
1: yeah so um short answer and most honest answer is no no that's um you know especially current whale populations no idea but i know that uh, Japan. It was court ruled that Japan was no longer to hunt whales in Antarctica, so that's sort of where those sea shepherd campaigns stopped. Uh, the last time I was down in New Zealand, we were we were in. Uh, I think the campaign launched out of Wellington, and the campaign was to go down to Antarctica and try to. Find these ten poaching poaching vessels that were poaching this poaching this fish called the toothfish, and in North American markets that fish is known as Chilean sea bass, but uh, Chilean sea bass is not uh it's not a real fish it's a made up name. Uh, the fish is called a toothfish, and while we were down there, we found the most notorious poaching vessel that we were looking for, and. Our fleet had two ships, the ship that spotted this ship. the ship is called the Thunder. The Thunder, when they got spotted, they dumped a whole bunch of illegal gill nets into the water, and then they fled. And one of our ships just started chasing them. And the ship that I was on went and spent the next few weeks retrieving that illegal gear. And once we retrieved that gear, we joined the chase. And we chased the thunder for 110 days. And a campaign that started in Antarctica ended 110 days later in the Indian Ocean. And the thunder sunk themselves to get rid of the evidence. So they all had to, uh, you know, depart into life rafts. And we had to save them and take them aboard while we watched their ship sink and they uh they took us to waters deep enough to where if they sank their vessel nobody could dive to it to collect evidence and yeah it was um it was a really really gnarly campaign that also ended up being a tv show and a documentary called the documentary i think was called chasing the thunder and there was another show on animal planet called, um, ocean warriors. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty. That's a pretty, pretty wild story. And I absolutely just gave you the cliff note version of the story. You know, there are lots and lots of details and that's the sort of story where when I tell people that cliff note version in passing, they don't believe me. Yeah. They're like, they're there's no way that happened. It's like, no, there, that's, that happened. That happened.
0: Did you get to chat yeah. to the, the people, the, the crew on the Thunder? What was, what was that experience like taking them
1: aboard? Yeah. So we, before we took them on board, we sort of had to, we had to, um, our engineers spent a lot of time sawing off staircases and just making the aft deck of the ship sort of like a makeshift holding cell. Because we had to take, you know, 40, 40 extra people on board. Uh, all the workers on the ship were, were Thai, and the officers and captain were Spanish. And the officers and captain did not like us, they did not like that we were the ones that had to rescue them. It was my job to get photos of the officers and captain when they were on our ship. And yeah, there were a handful of times where the officers would try to try to get a punch in on me. Like they would try to try to sucker punch me. For a hundred and ten days, this the officers were extremely violent towards us while we were chasing them. So to rescue them and have them on board for you know they were on board for maybe ten hours or so. Uh, they did not. They did not like it. They did not like that I had my camera in their face trying to get photos of them. It was it was a really intense situation. Yeah the the crew we um we took them to the nearest country and the nearest country was a country, a little island country called Seyotome? I'm not 100%, I am pronouncing that correctly. Uh, Seyotome and the Coast Guard came and picked them up. And within a few days, the, the Thai crew was flown home but the officers and captain uh, were in prison and went to trial and lost. And so they, uh, they went to prison.
0: Wow. Wow, yeah, that is a crazy a story.
1: Really crazy story. As soon as we found the thunder down in Antarctica, Interpol messages us. And Interpol, you know, the, the international police, they were like, hey, we've been after this ship for a long time. We will meet you in any port you need to to capture them. Wow. Yeah. That is awesome.
0: And yeah. And so... That was like the start of your your freelance career. Uh, what brought you onto my radar is the 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 animal tracking you're doing and the the Instagram account that you have sharing these. Where did that fit into the story? Because you you s- studied animal tracking, correct? Animal trapping.
1: Yeah. So upon me returning from Antarctica for the second time, uh, I met my friend uh, Thomas Knowles, who lives in BC, and. Thomas was like, hey, I uh I'm starting a new group, a new like conservation group. Um can you help us do media work? And I said, yeah, yeah, I would I would love to help doing your media work. Uh right now the group that he started back then is called Echo Conservation. They're one of uh, you know, they're my favorite BC-based conservation group. And I, you know, to this day, still love doing work with them. But we were working on the campaign to end the grizzly bear trophy hunt in BC, And that campaign was very trail camera and tracking focused. You know, we needed to find tracks and decide how fresh they were, put cameras up and, you know, go from there. I sort of I fell in love with tracking during that campaign being able to you know be in the bush and find animals by tracking is like a huge huge you know lost art you know people people often refer to as people often refer wildlife tracking as you know one of the first arts and yeah it's true that they're the art of wildlife tracking is a very very real thing that you know each and every one of us have within us we just you know st- somewhere along the way there was a disconnection where we disconnected with the natural world and we forgot how to read these tracks and we forgot how important these tracks were to our survival you know back in the day it was very very important to be able to know if these tracks that you're looking down mean dinner or if these tracks mean i'm i might be dinner and i think you know even to this day people will ask me why i think wildlife tracking is so important and those those two things you know is this something i want to get a photo of or is this something that i should you know be aware of that this animal is in the area
0: what what struck me most about stumbling upon your Instagram page, um, especially it being in the Pacific Northwest where where I spend a lot of time in the backcountry, is just how alive it made the area that I live and become. And seeing like the the quality of the shots you have of grizzly bears and and cougars and and lynxes and things, um, which is just so magical. Um, and and I love the way you just described it as it it being knowledge that is within us that is has become lost um because uh it, yeah it, it, it very much feels that way or that that connection with nature and being able to track what, what was the process of learning the art and science of, of tracking like for you yeah
1: i suppose the process was you know falling in love with the thought of being a wildlife tracker while out on campaign with conservation groups and then coming home back to Washington and looking up local tracking classes. And I took, you know, a local tracking course through a nonprofit in my area. And on one of the first days, you know, they said, you know, why, why are you here? And, you know, I said, I'm here because I'm a wildlife tracker. And then uh, it's funny that um, throughout that course, I learned how to, you know, be more comfortable seeing and identifying track and sign in the wilderness. But then I ended up going to school at Wilderness Awareness School, and i i joined their uh, I joined their wildlife tracking intensive program, which is like a ten month long program. And again, on the first day, they asked us, you know, why we were here. And I said, you know, I thought I was a wildlife tracker until I met an actual wildlife tracker. And, you know, just the knowledge that that person had just blew me out of the water. And it showed me that I didn't, I didn't know anything. Yeah, I was able to follow, you know, bear tracks on a muddy road, but... (laughs) That's not wildlife tracking. That's not being able to, uh, you know, identify, identify the animal's behavior. That's not. I wasn't able to, like, you know, age the tracks to see how fresh they were. So yeah, I took this ten-month course with Wilderness Awareness School, and I met people that were just like me, you know, that wanted to take their wildlife tracking skills to a whole new level. And that sort of opened the door for all things nerdery. You know, like I I became a nerd through that program.
0: And so was that the start of you camera trapping? Or have you been doing camera trapping longer than that?
1: So when most people think of camera trapping, they think of a little trail camera that you could strap onto a tree. And those cameras are motion activated. So if there is nothing in front of the camera, the camera is asleep. When an animal passes in front of the camera, the camera were, will trigger on and you know, take a photo or start recording a video of you know, whatever animal passes in front of your camera. The fact that the camera is asleep most of the time means that these cameras can be left in the field for months and months at a time. Which is, you know, really good for doing long-term field work. So yeah, that's you know, that's what camera trapping is to um, most people. So uh, what I do, I work with trail cameras and what I call DSLR camera traps. So a trail camera, again, is a little camera that you could throw on a tree, and everything is, you know, auto everything you don't have to do any work really you just have to make sure that you have a good composition you know that if an animal passes front from your camera it's going to produce a beautiful video but you don't have to worry about you know focus or anything a dslr camera trap everything is manual so you have to be a photographer you have to know how to take photos you have to you have to know exactly where you want the animal to step in the frame, to have the animal in focus. And if you bring lighting in, which is what myself and a lot of other people do, I have, you know, two or three off camera strobe lights that light up a nighttime scene. And to me, that makes the photo, you know, a lot more, beautiful and artsy it, it definitely brings an artsy craft into the world of camera trapping and i got right now in you know february of 2022 i am fully 100 obsessed with camera trapping and it all started and it all started on my first campaign with echo conservation on that same campaign to try to get the grizzly bear trophy hunt band. That was the first time I worked with a trail camera. You know, we bought a handful of trail cameras for that campaign because that can camp, the campaign was very, very trail camera heavy. And after that campaign, I think I went out and bought my own camera, my own little trail camera. And fast forward, you know, handful of years later, here I am and I have, you know, at any given time, I have 20 trail cameras and you know two different dslr setups and fully fully uh you know obsessed and committed to the art of camera trapping for conservation purposes
0: wow well i can uh yeah, you can see on your Instagram page, you can see which ones are the DS, because ah, it, it's so striking. The animals just really come to life in them. How many... Um, So did you say you've got 20 camera traps? Like how many do you have a, like on capturing right now?
1: Yeah, um, I don't know the exact number of, of trail cameras that I have total because any given year you have to uh, take the black bear collateral into effect. Uh, Black bears will very easily take your cameras out of commission. So it's funny, people often ask me, oh, don't people ever steal your cameras? Aren't you afraid of people stealing your cameras? And my answer is always no, I'm afraid black bears will eat my camera and break it. And last year alone, I think I had two, maybe three cameras that black bears destroyed so that's, yeah, that's definitely a thing. Uh, right now in the field in Washington, um, I have maybe seven cameras in British Columbia right now. I have one DSLR set up and I'm guessing nine, nine or 10 trail cameras that are hopefully, uh, still recording, <laughs> you know, knock on the woods, still recording right now. Uh, I placed those cameras in October of 2021. So there's a very good chance that the batteries have since died through a cold winter. Or if that area is very active, and I got a lot of animals on camera, that could fill up your SD card. Once the SD card is filled up, that's game over for that camera. Uh, sometimes you unknowingly set up on a very very active squirrel tree and your SD card will fill up with squirrels and uh, most of the time like 99.9% of the time actually 100% of the time squirrels are not my target species so whenever that happens it's quite the bummer so yeah um, I have you know handful in Washington handful in BC and I'm I'm really itching to get back up in BC and retrieve those cameras and see what I got.
0: So do you, do you sit like, how do you decide on how long you leave them up to, to record?
1: I try to not check cameras more than once a week. The more you, the, the more you check your cameras, the more you have to, you know, walk through that sensitive habitat that you're trying to get animals moving through. And, you know, you want to limit the amount of human activity in that area. So once a week at most, but, you know, honestly, likely maybe once every few weeks, I'll go and check a camera. And most, most of the time when I check a camera, I'm going with fresh batteries or a fresh SD card. And I just pop out the SD card, pop in a new one, and then I'm gone. I want, you know, as little human presence in that area as possible, just because I don't want to, I don't want to risk spooking my target species.
0: Okay. So I feel like I got a good understanding of that, that now, which just which allows me to get into the real good stuff, which is like the, the animal behavior and, and what you've learned from interacting with animals in this, this way. And um, j- just you describing that, um, it, it is interesting in, and in knowing um how like animals perceive our presence or the sensitivity that animals have of our presence. What, what does that look like? Is that just the mere stepping there? They, they have your scent that a human is, has been in that area.
1: Yeah, that question is pretty debatable. And honestly, I'm not sure if anyone really knows how comfortable an animal is with human scent, you know, I think there are a lot of people that recreate in the woods. I think a lot of animals are very, very used to what humans smell like. And I think the answer is really uh, dependent on the area that you're set up in. If you're in a very, very, very remote area that you know for a fact does not have a lot of human activity, then yeah, I think those animals are going to be a lot more Cautious of new sights and scents. You know, if they, a bear will often smell a camera. I've had bears smell the camera and then run away. I'm not positive. You know, I'm not in that bear's head. I'm not sure if they're running away because they smell me on the camera or if they're just smelling, you know, this plastic camera on a tree and they're like, yeah, that's not supposed to be here. I have no idea what that is. And run away because of that. A lot of animals are just really cautious and wary of cameras, especially canines. So, the wild canines that I'm mostly getting, you know, either fox, coyote, or wolves. Coyote and wolves are really, really suspect of anything unnatural in their habitat. For example, I'm trying to get some wolves on camera in northern BC right now. And it's been really, really hard. Every time I've gotten them on camera, they see the camera light turn on, which means they're passing by at nighttime. And they see a little, little red dot uh, from the infrared turning on. And then that spooks them and they run. And you know, I've had this camera. I've had a few cameras on this trail for months. And just as I was leaving, I was finally starting to get wolves that were a little bit more comfortable with it passing by the camera because they they know the camera's on the trail. They pass by it a handful of times now and the camera has not killed them. So hopefully, you know, they're like, okay, this thing is weird, but it's not a threat anymore. You know, we can go about our daily lives and this thing will not harm us but in the first few weeks and couple months yeah that was really difficult because they see this weird red light at nighttime in their habitat that you know the trails that they use every day and all of a sudden this this camera shows up and they're like yep nope don't like that don't like that one bit and yeah it's uh it brings up the question of why are these animals scared? Are they scared of, you know, this new device in their habitat or, you know, are they smelling humans? And I I think the answer is for animals like wolves that, you know, historically have had a really, really dangerous relationship with humans where, you know, in the lower 48, you know, the wolves were extirpated. We, we killed off all of the wolves. And I think that that has to do with wolves being really, really cautious and suspect around anything new, anything not natural in their environment. They just, they've learned to not, not trust anything. And it's frustrating, but I know that, I know that the success of wolves now is due to them being cautious. So I can't really fault them for that.
0: The other thing that comes up when you, when you share that is um, something I'm not super aware of is, is game trails in general. Is there just networks of virtual highways through the wilderness which, which game typically travel on? Or, or what's their movements through the forest typically like?
1: Yeah, so that's a really good question. Basically, animals will use any path trail that humans have made. And even though humans are making trails for human recreation, whether it be you know mountain biking or hiking, what have you, animals are definitely going to use those trails because they're going to be using trails of you know the least resistance. So not only are the animals using, you know, these human-made paths and trails, they often have their own system of trails that are either parallel to human trails or you know, going up steep mountains and ridges that humans don't even have access to. You know, the the athletic ability of the animals that I'm tracking on, on a daily basis is insane. To see, you know, a deer trail go up the steep ridge and see videos of deer and, you know, coyote, cougars just traversing these slopes like it's nothing. But, you know, when I'm up You know, when, when I'm up tracking, I'm huffing and puffing, you know, my way towards the top and just knowing that these animals are, are using these, these trails, uh, you know, like it's, it's, it's what they do. It's what they are built for. And it's, yeah, it's amazing to see these, this whole system of wildlife trails going into the bush. It's a whole matrix and, you know, you'll be following a trail another trail will intersect that trail then you decide to follow that trail that trail intersects with another trail it's very very easy to get lost just following wildlife trails it's amazing yeah there's a whole whole system of travel that's right under our noses that you know it's not on a, a main hiking trail so it's very easy to uh, to miss it, but these wildlife trails often intersect main main hiking trails. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you'll be on you'll be on like a very well-traveled, you know, human footpath to the summit of Sun Mountain, and there will be dozens of animal trails that intersect with that trail.
0: That's something I think about a lot in that watching your content or has helped me realize is that when I'm in the backcountry, even though I'm not seeing uh, cougars or not seeing foxes, deer or or bears, it's not to say that it's we're not in their homes, you know, that there, there are probably trails all around it. And it really just opens up the magic of the outdoors and knowing that we're in that um, that ecosystem. Um, something, I'm not sure if you know the answer to this, but... Um, do do you know any of the facts of exactly? So I I know there is a couple of cougars that just live in the backcountry around Squamish. Um, do you know like how large their stomping ground is?
1: Yeah. Um, and the easiest answer for that is it is as big or little as the land provides. So. For example, up in BC, you know, it can easily... uh, For example, up in BC, an adult male can easily have a home range of 200 square miles. But for example, down in, you know, urban Los Angeles in Griffith Park in Hollywood, there's a mountain lion named P-22 that has the whole park to himself. He's the only mountain lion in this park. And he's there because he crossed a few major freeways, including the 101 freeway that goes through downtown Los Angeles. And he traversed, you know, this urban habitat, just trying to find a new home. And he is, he's kind of, he's stuck. He's stuck, you know, uh, in this park that's literally in Hollywood, California, you know, Griffith park where the Hollywood sign is, is his home. And a lot of people will say, Oh, like, you know, shouldn't, shouldn't you you know tranquilize him and relocate him to, you know, somebody somewhere more natural, but he's the king of the castle. He has all the deer he could eat. He's the only mountain lion. He doesn't have to compete. And, you know, sometimes he might, walk through a neighborhood people get him on a ring camera, all the, on their like front door ring cameras all the time, you know, maybe scoping out to see if anybody has, you know, a dog or a cat that they left out. Maybe, I don't know. Um, but yeah, he's, his home range is small because he's stuck in this park, but you know, he's, he's happy. He's content with it. You know, when you get up North to, you know, let's say Oregon, Washington or BC, where these cougars can have much, much larger home ranges. Yeah, easily an adult male can have a home range around 200 square miles.
0: Well, wow. is that comparable? Is that similar for black bears, grizzly bears, or how do those, how do other animals compare to say 200 square miles?
1: Yeah, so black bears will be a lot more uh, concentrated. Uh, black bears aren't going to need to. Travel as um, much to eat. You know, like all cougars and bears are doing. You know, they're they're traveling as a necessity to eat. They're they're following the food. You know, for for cougars, they're following the deer. They're following the elk. And of course, those you know that food is not stationary. That food is on the move. For bears, you know, who are mostly eating vegetation, uh, you know, they don't they don't have to travel long distances. And so, no, their their home ranges are going to be a lot smaller. You know, for example, in an area, for example, it's it's pretty rare and not a very fun situation to have two male cougars in the same home range. Like they they're often fighting. But for bears, it's it's no problem to have. You know, especially if there are a lot of salmon around or a lot of berries around to have bears just gorging on food and they're they're able to share territory unlike you know larger apex predators like like cougars are so no yeah it's it's uh the the needed home range is vastly different species to species
0: sure Sure. Cause I, I think I saw one of your posts, uh, something about a family of black bears that you've been photographing for, for a couple of years now. Could you, could you tell us a story about how you encountered them and your relationship with them.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that's in a park near my house, like from, from my front door, I could be at that park in six minutes, I think. And I was doing some tracking, a few years ago, and I found a bear trail, like, you know, there were, there weren't distinct tracks that I could identify as a bear, but the bear just looked like, I mean, but the trail just looked like a trail that a black bear would use. And, um, you know, it had the right, right food for for black bear, the, the right, you know, vegetation and berry bushes that a black bear would need. So I decided to set up a camera Uh, I think just one one trail camera. That's what I use to do uh, to do research for an area. I'll just set up a camera and see how active the area is. And a few weeks later, I went and checked that camera. And yeah, this uh, this big uh, this big black bear came by and sniffed the camera. She didn't destroy it, which was, um, you know, always a good thing. And so I started to frequent that area and, you know, I have a lot of videos of her and last year I set up a few more cameras. I think I set up a couple trail cameras and then I got a DSLR trail camera set up there and I got a handful of photos of her and her two cubs of the year that year. So I, um, I have this series of images that I've been posting that I started posting recently of one of the big female. And it's funny, I didn't, I didn't know that she was a female until I saw her with the Cubs. When I saw her, you know, the first year, um, it was a little, it was hard to ID her. You know, she, she was a very, very big bear. So I, I think I probably assumed that uh, she was, she was a big male. But yeah, I got the same bear uh, on camera last year and she was with two cubs and I have maybe a couple hundred photos of her watching her cubs destroy my DSLR setup, which uh, luckily they didn't, they didn't totally break everything. Uh, Like nothing was ruined. It was, it's just, it's, it's a, a minor inconvenience, but I got some adorable photos of uh i I call her big mama of big mama and um double trouble which is what I, i call her her cubs uh of big mama and double trouble just destroying the the camera setup i got a few images of double trouble just looking like probably a few seconds before they started to knock down all my gear but they're just looking right into the lens of the camera and they have they just have the most mischievous eyes like you know just from the photo alone that they are up to no good and yeah I I walked up to my camera and my my camera my sensor my flashes they were just all on the ground with like tooth punctures and like my camera housing and my flash housing and as soon as I walk up to a camera site and see that, you know, that a bear has been through and I didn't know it was a bear with her cubs until I saw the photos. And I was, uh, you know, it was annoying, but I was glad I got some beautiful photos out of it. And yeah, it's, um, it's been fun watching big mama go from a solo bear to a mother. And right now they're in hibernation and hopefully within a couple months, She's going to reemerge from hibernation with her two yearlings that she had last year. And I'm sure uh, they are going to be more trouble this year than they were last year. Hopefully they don't uh, totally devour my cameras. It's a fun thing knowing that you are hiking the same trails that wild animals are using. And it's even better of an experience once you're able to get intimate photos of these bears and you're able to like look into their eyes and you know being able to produce a snapshot of you know just a very intimate moment in this bear's life is something that I uh I am obsessed with
0: yeah that's what really struck me uh when I first came across your work and, and specifically that post and that uh the quality of your shots are, are such that you can you can see that personality in the animal, and it gives you that uh, what I'm going to call like a remembering that we're not like removed from nature, living in 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 our suburban life, completely removed from the world where we're just another species sharing this land with them. I'm curious: yeah. is there any any like other ways that uh, or maybe speak more about this and that how animal trapping or, or, or spending the amount of time you have interacting with nature uh, has created almost a sense of reciprocity or connection with the, the natural world and the, the animals we share it with.
1: Absolutely. And I think the best way for me to do that besides camera trapping is just wildlife tracking through wildlife tracking, you know, you you're following this bear trail, you're able to see what the bear is eating, you know, you're able to ID ID that that bush that the bear is feeding on, then you go home and you read about that bush, you read about the berries that bush is producing. And you know, you you learn about that bears connection to that bush and like why that bear needs that food. You're following the same bear trail and you find a tree that has, you know, some bite marks in it and you look closer to that tree and there's a bunch of fur that's stuck to the bark of that tree. And you go, what is, what's this? Like, it looks like a bear was rubbing all up and down this tree. And then you look into that and you find out that that's a bear communication rub. You know, you often see bear, you know, you'll see photos or videos on that geo or something of bears rubbing on a tree. And you say, oh, that's cute. That bear is rubbing an itch. But no, you learn that that bear is not rubbing an itch. That bear is using that tree as social media, pretty much. That tree is social media and let's say Tinder or any other, you know, dating app for a bear. That bear is walking up to the tree and smelling the tree and then standing up and rubbing his or her body on the tree, you know, leaving the hair, leaving the the scent of the bear. Some male bears will often urinate at the same time when they're using these rub trees to leave their scent. And that's the bear saying, Hey, I was here. This is my area. Or sometimes, if they're looking for a mate, if the male or female are looking for a mate, they're saying, I'm looking for a mate. I'm looking to mate. I'm looking to get busy. And this, you know, this is how you'll find me. And you're able to, just from wildlife tracking, you're able to learn all of these things that the average person will just go hiking down a trail. Stepping on tracks, walking by these communication rub trees, not knowing that there's a whole world of wildlife behavior right under their nose. And that's that's what that's how I fell in love with wildlife tracking. It opened a whole new relationship to animals, a whole new understanding of animals. And yeah, there's just there's so much still in 2022 that we are now just figuring out and finding out about wildlife and i think wildlife tracking and studying wildlife behavior is a huge re- reason for that
0: that is so wonderfully said and and i think like i said the before we hit record part of the reason i i started this project is is in over the last couple of years of um, I've realized as I've started to develop more of a connection with nature, or become aware of the the magic that it, that I find that that I find in spending time outdoors. It, it's the, the metaphor that comes up is a, as a, a blind person learning to see. There, there's there's so much magic to be found, and what I what I love about your work is you you're helping. How helping show exactly the magic that's in in the the the, the area of the Pacific Northwest and, uh, and other places, which is is really beautiful to see.
1: Thank you. I'm 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 glad that you uh, you know I'm glad that you appreciate the the work that I'm doing. It always feels good. I'm I'm curious uh, of what we've covered. Uh, I, is, there,
0: is there anything else in this area that you'd like to share? I don't know. Maybe something about other animal behavior you've come across in your work or other wisdom you've learned from the the work that you're doing?
1: Oh, wow. Yeah. So similar to how black bears and grizzly bears will use rub trees for for the past couple of years, my my favorite animal to track and camera trap is, is the cougar. And, you know, whether you're calling it A cougar, a mountain lion, a puma, it's all the same animal. And one of my favorite things about tracking cougars is similar to the communication rub trees for bears, cougars leave what we call a scrape. And a scrape to the untrained human eye might just look like a little mound of dirt or a little mound of leaf litter. And you might see some like foot drag marks that create this leaf litter, and that's that's a cougar scrape. The The cougars are you know walking down the trail, and to mark their territory, they will with their hind feet that their their two back paws they do this this slow backwards motion, and they're you know kicking up. Dirt and debris and leaf litter and they create this mound and in their back paws, they have scent glands. And as they're creating this mound, they're scenting the earth. Sometimes they'll even pee on the mound once they're done with it. And then they just go off and, you know, do their mountain lion thing. And this is, you know, claiming territory, but it's also, you know, how they look for mates And I think that's, it's just a really, really cool example of another thing that the average person would very likely miss, they'll walk walk right by it, probably even step on it and not even know that it's, you know, a very, very important wildlife sign to see if, you know, there are, you know, mountain lions in the area. Depending on the freshness of the scrape, sometimes you can get down on your hands and knees and smell the mound and smell fresh cat urine. And you know that there's a mound line in the area. And that's, you know, that's super, super important, fascinating information that every time I see a scrape, I'm, I'm overjoyed. I'm fascinated. Just this past week, we were up on the Olympic Peninsula with Wilderness Awareness School. And we were tracking with, uh, this nonprofit called Panthera, what we were tracking with my friend, Andy, who works for Panthera and they have, um, a bunch of collared mountain lions, you know, they're, they're studying mountain lions. So they have, they have some study cats who have collars, So they're able to, you know, for the most part, know where the animals are hanging out. And Andy took us to an area where, uh, a 170 pound mountain lion named Hank was living and we were able to find a a massive scrape with a massive scat you know poop that hank left and it was that the scat was so this is uh, this is a, a funny thing because the way wildlife trackers talk about scat is not i'm very very aware that it's not a normal thing and it could be a really weird thing to hear as some as you know your average listener, maybe, but it was a big scat. And we were able to tell that it was, that the scat was a meat scat. It was filled with meat. So we knew that Hank had a kill in the area and we just, you know, followed uh, his, his trail. And we ended up finding a big elk that Hank killed. And, you know, to think of a mountain lion killing a massive animal like an elk, is so so wild. I'm not sure if you've ever seen an elk up close, but they are huge animals and to think that a mountain lion is walking around that's able to take down an animal like that is just fascinating. And yeah it um, you know we were able to find that elk kill because we were following the scrapes and you know the path of least resistance and just eventually took us to this elk kill. And yeah, it's, uh, I'm, I'm fascinated with scrapes and mountain lion behavior and how much we are learning about mountain lions right now that, you know, five to 10 years ago, we didn't even know existed. We've always known mount, mountain lions as, you know, very, very elusive, um, like loner animals. But there's a lot more community to mountain lion families that we didn't even know about you know there's evidence coming out of mount lions sharing kills with you know neighboring with a neighboring lions that are you know next to their home range you know sometimes they might overlap their home range a bit and we're finding out that they're sharing kills together and that's something that you know we didn't know 10 years ago it's wild that you know in this day and age we're finding out things about wildlife that share, you know, the same lands that we are recreating on.
0: It is. Could you comment on, um, I guess, the, the health of cougar slash mountain populations in the Pacific Northwest? So they thread into the health. What's the size of, like, their, their populations in this area?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, in the, in BC and in the Pacific Northwest, the only major threats to mountain lions are let's say poaching i mean poaching is always going to be a threat to any wildlife anywhere and human made infrastructure human made infrastructure meaning you know highways and roads the, the the project on the olympic the project on the olympic peninsula the thing that they're studying is they're putting collars on dispersing young cats that are leaving their family for their first time and seeing how they are crossing highways, seeing where they're crossing highways to, you know, knowing where these animals are risking their life, trying to cross a highway means that area is probably a good area for a wildlife bridge. So, yeah, the... Um, the main threats to mountain lions yeah is human infrastructure and poaching and in pacific northwest and bc there's there's a healthy population the the mountain lions are not going to be going extinct anytime soon there's a, you know as long as there is a healthy deer and elk population there will be a healthy mountain lion cougar population mm mm-hmm. That's
0: good to hear. Um, that said, I know that's not the case for, for all species and, and on your website, there's a number of, of awesome short films about say turtles, caribou, things like that. Is there any cause that you're particularly passionate about right now in the Pacific Northwest?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, right now, a big issue in BC is caribou. It's the mountain caribou, you know, mountain caribou are threatened throughout their range in bc by industrial development in the form of logging in the form of mining oil and gas and road building and the province of bc has mostly failed to to take meaningful acts to protect caribou uh, and the habitat that, that they rely on the habitat is you know, a big, big important thing that needs protection for caribou to survive. And with the caribou situation, over 1,000 wolves are killed in BC every year as part of the caribou recovery program. And yet the majority of the herds are not recovering because the province has not protected the vital habitat that the caribou need. You know, and this, this can be because, uh, you know, we are building logging roads into critical caribou habitat. Since we're building these roads, wolves are now using these roads to travel into, you know, critical core habitat that they didn't have access to before. You know, we're making it a lot easier for the wolves to get a caribou snack, but also, We need to pay attention to, you know, recreating in caribou-sensitive areas. You know, caribou recovery in BC is a very, very important issue right now. And it's not as sexy as, you know, saving the wolves or saving the bears. You know, like most of the public, for the grizzly bear trophy hunt, 92% of, you know, BC citizens were against the hunt. Because it's, you know, it's a popular, sexy animal, like, you know, a grizzly bear. It's, it's a, it's really hard to get, you know, majority of people to, you know, care about caribou habitat. It's, it's not as easy, but it's just as if not more important because caribou are dying off and unnecessary wolf killings are happening every year in BC. So that's yeah, that's a huge issue that um, is really close to my heart.
0: Mm. Thank you for sharing that. The, the, I feel like the it's the the example of officials with NBC's solution being culling wolves, where really that's that's not the problem, is a great example of the nuance that needs to be applied in protecting ecosystems. I think it might have been on a film that I saw of yours, um, something about how caribou, is it? is one of the main source lichen that only grows on trees that are over 150 years old or something.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's one of the, you know, devastating things about clear cutting old growth forest is you are destroying a very, very important food source for these caribou. And, you know, these caribou are, you know, dying off for so many other reasons and that they, they don't need us cutting out their food source. That's, that's a huge overlooked issue.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is it? What is the best way for people of BC to support uh, this course right now?
1: Yeah, for folks that live in BC that want to get involved with, you know, the caribou recovery efforts, I really urge you to... You know tune in groups like echo conservation they have a really good species at risk program they have a few different species at risk programs but caribou being one of the main species at risk right now they have a a really really interesting project that need all the support they can get right now
0: awesome i'll um dig out a link for that and put that in the show notes um so jeff we're we're pretty much at at time here um and I, i got a lot from this this conversation um, is there, uh, aside from your Instagram, your, your website, is there anywhere else you want to direct listeners to, 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 learn more about you or the causes you're, you're involved with?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, just basically hit me up on, you know, the website and the Instagram. I, I also have, you know, silly things like TikTok and whatever, but, um, yeah, the, the website and the Instagram are the
0: main two point people well Jeff thank cool. you so much it's been so cool to talk to you You got like a y- unique wisdom when it comes to interacting with the natural environment and and like I said earlier the the way you're also able to capture the magic of the nature uh that that's around us is is so cool so I just I really appreciate the work you're doing here
1: Thanks for having me on and, you know, thanks for asking questions that I normally don't get asked every day. You, you kept me on, on my toes for this, this podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to Mountain Whispers. There's an awful lot of really great listening content out there. So it means a lot that you chose this. In the show notes, you'll find a link to Jeff's Instagram, Stay Wild Media, a link to his website with some cool prints that you can buy. Also find a link to Eco Conservation. Uh, the nonprofit that he just mentioned, and a trailer to the Sea Shepherd documentary they worked on called Chasing the Thunder. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please do the review uh, rate thing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, etc. Um, but even better, share this with someone you know. Link this to a friend. It feels a lot more meaningful that way. Uh, again, these episodes drop every second wednesday thursday unless i accidentally delete the recording
1: like i did with this one much love until next time